Hello, and welcome to Once More with Feelings, a podcast where we talk about die and our feelings. I'm Christina. And I'm Kate. And today we're talking about die issue number two. Yes, we are. Yes. This one's a lot, Christina. Yeah, they certainly kind of held back a lot of punches in the first issue. <laughs> Which, for those of you that read the first issue with us, the fact they held back punches in the first issue. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I saw it explained that the first issue was just sort of get you involved in the world, mm-hmm. and the second issue was more exposition-y. Yeah, which does make sense. This happened more in like the early 2010s, but the first issue needs to be a bang, and it needs to make you want to buy the second issue. Which makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's just now a lot more people do it in terms of thinking about who's going to buy the trade rather than individual issues. Yeah. because. Market's moving over to trades. But I really like this. I like the one issue bang and then we get right into it. Which is not to say that the second issue is not a bang. Yeah. Because a lot happens in this issue and it very much sets a tone that makes me both excited and fearful for the rest of the ongoing narrative. Yep, sure does. Like, ooh boy, okay. Yeah, it was... Quite a lot. And diving right in on the players page, though, I like how he set this up because we have their dice diagrams are all next to them. It reminds me a lot to Wicked Divine. And a lot of comic books do this. They have a little intro page that reminds you who the characters are so that you don't get confused. Mm -hmm. But it's a similar concept that Wicked Divine had set up where everyone is represented by their individual symbols. And then there's like a tiny little blurb about them a snarky little blurb yep and they're all very good blurbs yes oh this is so good and it's so much so we'll start do you want to take this page the first page sure so we begin where we left our heroes last time standing in a wasteland a ruined sepia toned wasteland once again just gazing at stephanie hahn's gorgeous art and sighing wistfully Mm mm-hmm But Dominic is leading the charge here, or the dictator, or Ash. I don't know which name we're going to be saying more as time goes on. We'll see. Against Solomon, their friend who has been left here for 30 years. We get Ash's, I'm going to use that for the moment, Ash's narrative talking about how Saul has been here for nearly 30 years. I can't imagine what sort of things that he has learned to do that we never knew in that time. Hmm. And he basically challenges the group. Saul was staying there and he says, you're move players. And the players kind of are falling back into their roles. But also, apparently, we're going to learn about the Gaius that they've all been under. And we learn why they did the Gaius, which we were all wondering in that first issue. And apparently, it's really interesting narratively that the Gaius that they're talking about, the thing that was preventing them from speaking about their experience was preventing Ash from telling us, the listener, as well. Yeah. Or the reader. It's preventing us from knowing exactly what happened, because the line says, the Gaius is gone now, I can tell you everything. Yeah. Which I really like. Also, another word for dictator is somebody who's dictating a story. Yes. So that also makes sense why Ash is going to be our narrator. Though I am curious if we'll get to see any of the others narrate for us. It would be interesting to get a point of view. It was a similar Mm -hmm. thing. We had Laura's dictation in Wicked Divine, and then it cut away for a good while. We never had anybody else's point of view, but it would be interesting to see if that was different in this series. 
the Grandmaster told us how to escape. And essentially escape is the entire party has to agree and you have to wish for it real hard. Yeah. But the Grandmaster was kind of the magical roadblock. He was bending things so they couldn't leave. But he said, however, if you go out and be my prophets out in the real world and get more people to come into this fantasy realm, then I will totally just let you go. It's fine. Yep. You just have to do more people to this experience. Yep. Which is why they did the Gaius. So if they agreed, yeah, if we go out, we'll talk about it. More people will come. But they're they're not like reneging on their promise if they literally prevent themselves from talking about it. If they can't speak about it, then they're keeping our world safe was their concept. Yeah. Well, I don't think they even agreed to be the prophets. I think they did a last blow on the Grandmaster, did the Gaius as like a fuck you. And then he gets a second wind and he grabs Sol and Angela's arm before they leave. Well, from the art, it kind of looks like the Grandmaster snags the boy and rips him out of their circle, their teleportation circle, and Angela's reaching out to grab him. Like, you see her arm extending outwards back to grab him? Yeah. So it looks like they teleported away with everything that was in the circle, excluding her arm. Yep. That's our story about how Angela lost her arm. It was in that last fight. Well, actually, they mentioned that she got a mechanical arm in Ty. Later in the comic, they mentioned that she got her mechanical arm here and that when they arrived, it was gone. So I don't know. It sort of implies in this art that it disappeared when she was reaching away out of the teleportation. But it's later implied that things that you get and die don't transfer over. So she got a mechanical arm in this world, but didn't have one in the next. I need to reread the first one because I didn't get that impression at all because Andrew was screaming about her missing arm when they went back. Yes, when they're back, that's true. But they're having a conversation later in the comic, sort of to skip ahead, when they're discussing the difference between like, how are we going to treat this world? If we're going to treat this as real or as fake? It's one of the last pages. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get to that page. We'll table this discussion until we get there. Yep. So back on the plane, we have people sort of assuming that Ash the Dictator is going to be the diplomat and be the one who's actually discussing things with Soul here and negotiating for them. But it's revealed that that's really not what's going to happen here. It doesn't matter what Ash says. The words here are, this isn't a conversation. This is the sort of monologue you run in your head with lovers you'll never speak to again. Yep. Like, doesn't matter what they say to Soul. Soul's mind's already made up and this is happening. And what is happening is this monologue where Solomon says he's not angry with the players. He's sorry it took so long for him to bring them back here. And now that the Grand Master is gone and Solomon is the Grand Master, fantasy is ours now and forever. They can play for as long as they like. Yep. The way that Solomon is always shown with like the mask, the hood slightly over his face and like the close-ups on his mouth in specific, like it always is so ominous. And I think it's partially because of the way that he's colored because he's, at least in this scene, he's colored constantly in these shades of red. It's eye blood. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just really creepy. What you see of him in these conversations are his mouth and these, like, gross blood trickles, and it's just so creepy. Mm-hmm. And he's clearly gone off the deep end since he's been here alone, fighting on his own for so long. Yeah. So then we get these people trying to give Sol a reality check of, we've grown up. This isn't teenagerville anymore we are not children who want to play a game anymore 
so I'm 43. This is Isabel. My impossible fantasy is being able to pay off my mortgage or have my mom stop sighing whenever kids turn up in conversation, <laughs> which I feel you there, Isabel, except without the mom sighing about kids. At the wildest, it's to write the book. At the wildest. And so that means maybe she's been talking to Sol about writing a book before. Possibly. Yeah, because she says that in capital letters. Yeah, which seems to imply that it is a proper noun, like the book. It's something that they understand the reference to. Yep. And then we have Matt going, so my fantasy was not being the kid I was then, and now I'm not. So Matt's like, I was awful. Yeah. I felt awful all the time. And then we have Angela going, this is such a bad time. Rupert is going to keep the kids if I disappear for even a few days. They'll be missing me. And if you let me go, I'll come back and play, but just not now. It's good to see Angela try, but she's not me. So basically, Ash is saying, none of these are going to work. Yeah. None of them are me. And Sol's not even listening. He's a railroading NPC giving us a briefing we can't skip. So kind of like, he's decided whatever they say doesn't matter. We're starting this game. Yeah. Basically, it's Sol giving them exactly what he just said. It's the railroading NPC at the beginning of a game speech. Yeah. Saying, things are bad. You need to... Come back and fix things. Look what I did to this once beautiful realm. I've completely decimated it. You need to stop me. Also, I've added a theme. You can never go home. Yeah, which is terrifying. It is. It's interesting, though, that Sol doesn't just offer them like, oh, well, I've ruined things. You're here as you have to fix it. He also says like, everything's prepared for you. Such delights. Like he's trying to make this a good story still. Mm hmm. He's here trying to, like, make things interesting for them. So it's not just going to be all bad. Presumably it will be good. But do we trust Solomon to understand what is good anymore? Yeah, I mean, this might be a great story. But as both you and I know, great D&D stories can also involve things like character death. And a lot of pain. A lot of pain. Like some of the greatest D&D stories we know, if any of you all... Spoilers for the Critical Role first arc. <laughs> In Critical Role, they lose one of the two twins they lose a character called vax who had like had this amazing character growth and he does not make it at the end no and that was heartbreaking but it was still beautiful and it was an amazingly told story and that's what D is that doesn't mean that the character who plays him or the person who plays him liam actually died yeah that would be messed up if it were true yeah oh god imagine like extreme critical role if you die in the game, you die in real life. <laughs> That's been the joke for forever. Yeah. So we have Ash, once again, is arguing, we can go home, Saul. Like, we can do it. And Solomon says something that's like a little bit of a rhyme. It feels like this is sort of like a narrative lore buildup more than actual something someone says. He says, we can, if we all agree, defeat the Grand Master, then we'll see. It's like a little like couplet. Yeah. Where he's just kind of setting up their ultimate goal, I guess. And this is kind of proof that he's definitely gone off the deep end. Yeah. And it's also a reminder that you have to get me to agree to go home too, guys. Yeah. And the theme is apparently you can never go home, which sets up a lot of stuff. Like, because that has a double meaning. It has not only the fact that, like, he's saying you can literally never go back home to England. But also the phrase you can never go home often implies that even if you go back to the physical location that was your home, mm -hmm. it will have changed so much that it's no longer home. Yeah. 
You can never go back to the way things were when you remembered them. That's a big foreshadowing for the rest of this not only issue, but probably the rest of this comic. So I get the feeling I should probably also start a die conspiracy wall and put up a bunch of different things on there now, including this phrase. Probably. I wouldn't be surprised. Yep. So Solomon leaves and... I think it's Matt who says, like, you could have used the voice, Ash, implying that Ash could have forced his will upon Solomon, possibly. Mm -hmm. He could have done something to make Solomon, like, listen to him. Could have ended it right now. Could have ended it, but he didn't do that. And he doesn't want to do that. He says, I don't want to turn this into a war. Not yet. Which is a little worrisome. Mm -hmm. There probably is going to be a war. I get the feeling that probably Ash and Saul were their two power players when it came to things like this. And so if anyone can contradict the dictator, it's probably the storyteller. Possibly, yeah. So if they start using their powers against each other, that will probably end up with a big old fight. Yeah. And speaking of fighting, they're sort of about to like fall into infighting and bickering amongst themselves, this group, mm -hmm. when they're interrupted by the stereotypical of fantasy call of hail adventurers yep and what we see is an elven princess coming downstairs and you have return i've come with grave tidings so this is another npc there to railroad them into a story is what it looks like yeah she's the generic elf queen of the council from the dreaming lands we didn't spend any time in there we were teens and we didn't feel like playing with elves apparently this Elven Queen, she's Maria Wardwell of the Upper Sixth, so she was a grade above them, and she was apparently the most beautiful girl in sixth grade when they were in fifth grade. Well, Upper Sixth is actually like the equivalent of a high school senior. Okay. So the most beautiful senior in school mm -hmm. when they were a year below her, and once saw her in a local amateur dramatics production of Dr. Faustus, she played Helen of Troy. It wasn't a speaking role, she just stood there and was herself. I was torn between how insulting it was and how I couldn't tear my eyes away. So apparently this girl from Upper Six, she had a way about her where she just drew everyone's eyes. And the queen doesn't really look like her. She looks like Maria Felt, which is what they're trying to get to. Like, you want to look at her. You want to keep your eyes on her because she's so beautiful. And apparently Solomon was very good at doing that when he built NPCs. He was very good at giving an impression rather than just ripping off. He was good at giving an essence of something to a character that made you want to look at them. And it's also interesting. There's a sort of discrepancy between how somebody is and how you remember them. There's definitely like your mental image of somebody, how they make you feel and how they actually are, mm -hmm. which is not necessarily the same thing. It's how you feel about someone, how you view someone is not necessarily the same as how they actually are. And so I would agree that this elf queen looks like, what was her name, Maria? Yeah. She looks like Maria, but the implication is that she's not exactly Maria. She doesn't look exactly like her, but she has that grandiosity. She has that perfectness that they remember about Maria. And the elf queen delivers a speech. The Grandmaster threatens the realm. You are only hope. So a very... Princess Leia talking to R2 to go to Kenobi. I was just thinking the same thing. The you are our only hope line. Yep. It's very reminiscent of that. This is not a Star Wars podcast, though. This is not a Star Wars podcast, but we can reference it because it's literature. <laughs> Listen, it makes sense. It does make sense. So her arriving, this girl arriving, this elf queen arriving, 
it hits them with all this nostalgia all of a sudden, especially Ash, who we can sort of get the internal monologue of. Mm-hmm. This reminds them of the last time they were here. And just like how they're all falling back into their old roles from when they were here, it's falling them back into their old feelings. I instantly feel 16 and virginal. It feels like panic. Yeah. They're in their 40s now. They've had so many years to get over this place. But as soon as they're back here, they're just like reverting almost. Mm -hmm. And Chuck sort of breaks off from the group to go talk to the fancy elf queen, the fancy pretty elf queen. This scene actually made me laugh because if you've played D&D, you have at least one character or you've played with at least one character who's like this. Oh, Agnes. Also, sorry, my barbarian just touches things and starts shit. Well, I mean, yeah, but I feel like for the beginning part of this scene is there's a stereotype in a lot of role-playing games, especially in Dungeons and Dragons, of the bard character. Like if you're reading the back of these comics, Kieran goes into a lot of detail, especially in the back of this comic, Mm -hmm. about exactly what roles all of these players fill. And there are technically two bards in the party A bard being somebody who's known as the ridiculous character whose main power is making things work out for them and making people believe what they want. Mm -hmm. It's the person who manipulates other people and is generally ridiculous. And in Dungeons & Dragons, generally also has the stereotype of being the one who's seducing everything. (laughs) Yeah, that is Agnes, who's our sorceress in our one of our main games yeah but the player of agnes just likes to go around and see how many people will think agnes is oh so pretty i roll to seduce (laughs) so chuck steps up and like goes forward and says we all know the deal here what rewards will be beyond our wildest dreams like he's going up and just being sarcastic towards this woman and he's also being crude he's also being very crude like he's being purposely crude yeah The woman, the elf queen, says, oh, Chuck, I know what reward you long for. And it's like specifically set. There's like lighting coming from behind her. There's all this ethereal. Are those supposed to be wings or is those just like fabric coming off the back of her outfit? It's hard to tell. Mm -hmm. They kind of look like wings. I don't know if that's intentional or not. But it's a very ethereal and feminine image, especially the coloring. Yep. And in the background, it hard cuts to Angela just being like, oh, God, not this again. Yeah. How many people did Chuck sleep with while they're in this fantasy realm? (sighs) The eternal question. Yep. But he says, oh, I like that. And then there's a (laughs) unexpected turn. Yeah. He stabs her and we get a lot of blood right through the chest and she falls. Yep. And he's kind of grinning and everyone looks horrified and Matt yells, what are you doing? And Chuck's like, wait for it. He knows something's up here. Yeah, and he's right. Like, he's grinning. It's kind of a self-satisfied expression he has on his face. It's not necessarily cruelty, but there is a little bit of delight that he's taken in cutting this, what everyone perceives to be a woman, down. Because Chuck is also a storyteller. Like, he's able to predict, like, this would be a good story beat here. Yeah. He's definitely, while he was there, was watching... Probably how Soul told stories and also how the Grandmaster of that world told stories and he learned. Interestingly enough, because the word bard in Dungeons Dragons, the role that Chuck is supposedly filling, a bard historically is someone who walked from town to town and told stories. Mm-hmm. A bard is a traveling storyteller. Their job was to entertain, whether through music or story, sometimes both. That's why Shakespeare is called the bard. Yep. Because he 
was a storyteller and arguably one of the best ones of his age. Though it does bring to my mind the hilarious mental image of Shakespeare being in Dungeons and Dragons Bard <laughs> and all of the craziness that would arise with that. I feel like we should build that character. That'd be so funny. That would be real funny. That'd be so funny. But so this woman was once a beautiful elf queen that reminded them of their like crush from secondary school suddenly starts spouting out binary and can we take a brief pause to figure out what this says because i didn't at the time you want to run it through a translator yeah okay you can do that give me a hot second while you run that through i'm going to talk a little bit about the art but it's just gorgeous like this palette is very red based which i think is going to play very well with the fact they're in a war and everything's going to be bloody and awful. And you also in the background, you see what looks like eyes opening as the blood drips down. And it looks very creepy and very ominous. And I love it. I love this art so much. We hunger. Oh. That is what the fallen is saying. The visage of a elf woman burns away, literally burns away. And what's left is this monstrous creature spouting binary, which is an interesting, like, anachronism i guess for a fantasy world it's definitely something more technological that doesn't seem like it would fit in a fantasy world but as we learn later in the comic there is a sort of built-in like way that technology fits here in die yeah they made technology kind of fit in with the fae yeah which is a very interesting choice very good catch there on the binary christina yeah it says we hunger so the fallen these creatures that apparently can mimic other people like, are trying to consume. Maybe they eat NPCs. Maybe they, like, can consume NPCs and take the form of the people they consume. Who knows? Speculation. Yeah. And Ash, we get his monologue, and he says that these are basically orcs. They are the stand-in baddie, the low-level NPC baddie that you can kill with no moral questions whatsoever. I don't know if they're low-level NPC baddies, but something you can kill with no moral questions whatsoever. Well, if we're making it out to be the orcs-like parallel, yeah. at higher levels, a single orc is not a threat. Yeah, that's true. Like, in various fantasy situations, you have goblins or orcs or whatever little, like, gross gremlin creature. Kobolds. Kobolds is your general bad guy like the little minion that you can fight and kill without worrying about like do they have a family mm -hmm. the fallen seem to be that and die they are creatures that look vaguely like technological but also weirdly wraith-like yeah can we also talk about how chuck figured out she was a fallen yeah of course she is as if the princess was ever gonna fuck me <laughs> yeah seriously he knows his extent he knows his reach <laughs> As if she was ever going to, like, want to sleep with me. Yeah. The fact that she was offering was immediately suspicious. <laughs> the fact she was here, the fact she was offering, nah, that's not how a story works. So as we see this fallen changing, wind seems to be blowing off them. There's some force that's blowing wind off. But from the sand around the fallen, more figures are arising. Mm-hmm. They look almost like cyclopses or cyborgs of some sort. They do look like cyborgs. They're a little bit, like, Predator-esque. Mm-hmm. They look a little bit like Predator. They look a little bit like the Borg from Star Trek. They look a little bit... Like orcs. Yeah. They're both organic and inorganic. Yeah. I like them. They also remind me, if you've ever watched Bleach, they remind me a little bit of the Hollow Masks. The Hollow Masks, yeah, from Bleach, 100%. Mm-hmm. But no one laughs at a joke that tries to murder you. Murder. Yeah. 
And so Ash, who I want to talk about their name in a minute, because their name also can mean a lot, but yells, everyone get away from them. And this also made me laugh because Chuck instead goes charge and barrels right in. The commentary on this, when I was reading it, I was sitting in my kitchen table. I had two copies. Savannah was reading one at the same time. Yeah. And we read it about the same pace. So we both got to this page at the exact same time. And we both looked at each other and we're like, Leroy Jenkins. <laughs> yep. I'm glad I'm not the only one that thought that. Leroy Jenkins. For you youngins, definitely look up that meme. It's mwah. It explains this very well. <laughs> and... Getting away would be the smart thing to do, but Chuck is the fool. Fools rush in. It's very good. This is also another player that many people know. They're occasionally referred to as chaotic stupid. Yeah, I love chaotic stupid players, though. It depends on how they play their chaotic stupid. Chaotic stupid players can go either really fun or real bad. But I think Chuck might fall into like a little bit of the chaotic stupid. Not like all the way, but definitely some of the way. There's characters who... There's players, I should say who are disconnected from the story. They're really just here to have a good time. And they play a chaotic stupid in a sense where they don't care about the consequences of any of their actions. They just want to do something that's fun. Yeah. And then there's characters who are invested in the story and care a lot about what's happening and everybody else in their story, but who also just want to watch the world burn. And so they're here to just rush in and do stupid stuff because also it is fun. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely a thing. I feel like we have another campaign where there are several characters who are playing chaotic stupid. Well, that's because we're all bards in that campaign. Exactly. <laughs> we're going to need to talk about our campaigns on, you have a podcast coming up, another one. Sort of. If and when I ever have free time, that podcast will get a little bit more attention. Yeah. But that one is just talking about Dungeons and Dragons, yes. So we'll have to plug that probably later. This page, this next page gives us a little insight onto how people's individual classes work. And I freaking love the interpretation that the classes have. So for one thing, the fool, the class that Chuck is playing, is made to be chaotic stupid. And the thing about it is as long as he's playing that way, everything works out for him. Yeah. Careless attitude is his protection. I love it. I absolutely adore that interpretation that the way that he's acting, as long as he doesn't care about anything, he'll be fine. Like that is his superpower is so long as he doesn't care about anything that's going on, he'll be fine. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone else will be. I love it. And he rushes in and he's trying to attack. The group is having some infighting and they're discussing what they should do. Ash is trying to direct everyone. Isabel is being a little bit subordinate. Like, that doesn't mean you're in charge. Just because we're back here doesn't mean that you're in charge of us. Mm -hmm. And we learn a little bit of exposition about the fallen, which implies that there are fallen worms. Like, there's these creatures that dig through their bodies. And it sort of is what I thought. When I thought that, like, the fallen consume, it might be the fallen itself is like a parasite that infects you. Yeah. And so these worms get in your body and then take over you, which is an unpleasant mental image. Yeah. And it sounds like they experience this real pain. Yeah. Trapped in a demon's catacomb with battery acid wires weaving through our skin, which leads me to believe that what we were talking about, the fallen being partially inorganic, they're technological. The battery acid wires might be literal. These worms might have been turning them into cyborgs. Yeah. Into a fallen. Yeah. And Isabel apparently cured them. 
And she did it through a miracle because she is the cleric stand-in for the party. I love her cleric stand-in. I can't wait to see the RPG system and see her character class. I know. It's so cool. She is Godbinder. Mm -hmm. And this is a flip of how usual clerics and cleric stand-ins in games like Pathfinder and D&D play. A cleric is usually someone who's beseeching their god for power. Their power comes from the grace of the god they worship. Yep. Because they bow to the gods and they please that god. Yeah. Not Isabel. Nope. Like, this is the best line. She summons a bear god. Yep. A giant astral bear, which seems like it's probably some sort of primal deity. Yep. And she says, I need power. Give it to me. And the bear comes in like, come to parlay for the divine force or whatever. And she says, if I wanted to be polite, I'd have asked a human for the favor. You're just a god and you owe me. Hmm. So it seems like Isabel doesn't care about gods, and she also basically deals in trading favors with them. Yep. And it sounds like Isabel yells, obey, at the bear god as the bear god goes after their enemies. What I love in this art is how powerful Isabel looks when she's summoning the bear. But also in this image, this giant bear that's glowing is like breathed in red and is coming down to smite these people. But then Isabel herself is also glowing. Yeah. And she's glowing almost inside the bear. Yeah, her arm is raised like the bear's arm is raised. It's great. It's very cool. And then we hear Isabel's inspiration for this and... Apparently, as Isabel once put it, what's the difference between a demon and a god? It's exactly the same question as what's the difference between a terrorist and a freedom fighter. Yep. Which is an interesting way of putting it, especially with Kieran's previous comic. There's a lot of questions that that raises, and I'm so far really enjoying these interpretations. Mm -hmm. Godbinders are clerics as demonologists. So essentially, the idea is a godbinder sees gods as possibly a scourge that need to be controlled or wiped out and controlled gives them more power. I'm sort of thinking of demonologists in the concept of, in funnily enough, King Solomon. Yeah. If you know the legend of King Solomon, he summoned 72 demons to bind to his will to build his grand palace and kingdom. And that's why there's like books that supposedly say how he did it and the rituals he performed to summon these demons. It's I feel like sort of a similar thing that Isabel has performed rituals to bind gods to her power. Yeah. And maybe that's like making deals with them or trading favors with them. I don't know exactly. I'm sure we'll find out. It's probably a mix. It's all coming back. How to be a hero. Chuck is ahead of the curve. And so Chuck is digging into what I'm guessing used to be the elf queen. Kind of looks like it, yeah. And apparently he knows all about Angela's needs. And this makes me think that that elf queen probably actually used to be the elf queen. Probably. You're gold of the fair, madame. And he comes to Angela with a glowing piece of gold. And we get an explanation of Angela. She is a neo. Her artifacts are gifts from the fair. The fair are what if William Gibson designed elves? It's complicated. So it's a very fey or elven technologically based thing. It's. A weird thing, because when you think of fairies, because they're fairies, basically. Yeah. You think of, like, woodland creatures, mischievous woodland creatures who weave magic into a sort of surreal understanding of how the world works. Mm -hmm. But imagine if they, instead of doing nature stuff, did technology stuff. Yep. I actually love that idea. 
for multiple reasons, including the idea that fairies pop up around things that humans value because of the way that humans value them. Right. Which it would make sense that technology would start to produce fairies that way. But it's a fairy pact. Every morning her equipment is dead until she pays the tithe. And it looks like Chuck just gave her the tithe. Which is this gold, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's possible because the fallen appear to be technological. It's possible they have a similar deal going on here. Mm -hmm. Maybe that the elf queen didn't have this gold on her person because she just did. Maybe the gold is how the fallen was able to work. Because it might be that all technology follows sort of the same rules in this world. That it requires magic to work, but that magic has to be fueled by something. Yeah. Well, the fact that it says gold of the fair. Yeah. So that makes me wonder, is it like elf money or is it elf life force? It's sort of implied in the next page. We see Neo coming into life. Mm -hmm. We see her helmet falling down over her face her visor comes down her powers are activated her bionic arm starts to glow and light up as she is activated and she's able to hack people it says and is the cyberpunk rogue her 13 year old dreams like conjured up but interestingly to me it also feels a little bit like a warlock because she has to do this deal and make this sacrifice in order to get her powers yeah there's a little bit of warlock in there too yeah however this gold of the fair sort of acts like traditional leprechaun gold in a lot of, like, mythology. Leprechaun are fae, for one thing. They're parts of the fae. Mm -hmm. They're gold. You get it, but in a lot of myths, it disappears the next day. It's not real. It's basically just like a trick. Yeah. And gold of the fae does the same thing. It turns to dust the day after. And so she can do her cyberpunk stuff only as long as she has this gold of the fair. And the gold of the fair will disappear a day after she uses it. So she has to keep getting more. The tithe pays for 24 hours. Exactly. It's also a little bit like an arcade system. Yeah. She has to keep paying money and to keep playing. Yeah. I didn't think of that, but you're 100% right. She just got to keep putting quarters in in order to keep playing. This is an interesting concept that Ash says, like... I don't get why people didn't trust rogues in D&D because all players are thieves. Yeah, we are. Which is 100% true. Literally, all players will steal stuff because there's still that element of no consequences. This is a game. There's a favorite chant of loot the bodies, loot, loot the, the bodies. bodies. <laughs> we'll just take stuff because it's not real. And so there's no element of like, maybe we shouldn't. Yeah. But Neos are cyberpunk rogue drug addicts. Which also means that this turned Angela, Ash's sister, into a drug addict. In a sense, yeah. But her addiction being the power that she got to feel. Mm -hmm. The drug, the high that she gets, is using her Neo powers. Yep. And in order to do that, she has to keep getting this leprechaun gold, basically. And unfortunately, the rest of the party is enablers. Yeah. Because they need her to be powerful, to be useful. And so they're going to help supply her with this drug. Yep. It's already getting pretty dark. Yep. I'm really curious to see if it's my theory where she lost her arm when they were getting out, or if it's your theory that she lost her arm earlier with her cyberpunk arm. We'll get into it. Yeah. But if your theory is right, that means she sold her arm for more power. Yeah. Cyberpunk is a genre in itself. Yeah. I mean, that's a thing that happens. 
and especially in recent video games, a lot of cyberpunk video games coming out recently, especially there's a game, I don't know if it's come out yet, called Cyberpunk 2020 or something, or 2030 or something like that. I'm not sure. I think it's called Cyberpunk 2030. It's this idea of a near but still slightly distant future where it's a cyberpunk reality. And one of the tropes of cyberpunk is that people will augment themselves with technology. Mm -hmm. They will trade parts of their body for cybernetic quote-unquote upgrades that will do other stuff that a normal human body couldn't. Yeah. It's a trope. It's something that happens. It is. So, yes, Neo enters the fray. But it's not enough. We have the Fool fighting, we have the Godbinder fighting, we have Neo fighting, but we still need the Grief Knight. Yep, they're Paladin standard, I think. He's like their fighter, yeah, general fighter archetype. And it's implied that he needs to feel sad in order to be powerful. And Matt doesn't feel sad anymore. His depression is gone. He's presumably had a lot of years of therapy. Like, he's better now. Yeah, he's gotten to a place where he can be happy. Yeah. But the dictator can change that. Gotta strip it away. Yeah. And feels like in this point, he needs to. We see where this is going, right? Matt doesn't want this. No. And then we get to see some of the dictator's power in order to pull out the Grief Knight's power. And the fire of the eye kind of starts to move more. And we hear tears on the casket rain on your face. And he's back to how that felt. And he starts crying and out of the handle comes the blade. And his tear hits the gem on the blade. And it says, I'd say I'd missed you, but it imply you're worth missing. I missed you no more than your family will be missing you now. So also this blade is, you know, an emotionally abusive relationship. Yeah, the blade itself is a verbally abusive asshole. Yeah. Like, what the crap? It's a blade that's, like, its power is that it makes Matt feel worse so that he can keep fighting. Yeah. So Matt becomes the Grief Knight, and it seems like he hates Ash for this. They were apparently very good friends, but he hates that Ash is making him feel this way. And Ash says, I'll do anything to get you home to your family. Hate me later. Save us now. Yeah. Which is a good point. Ash is very much like a greater good sort of person. He's immediately thinking about the end game. I mean, that's his character. The dictator is a planner. They're a strategist. And also self-described a little bit Machiavellian. Yeah. Like, not really caring about the means so much as the ends. Yep. This shit has to get done. And I'm sorry, this is going to hurt, but it'll be over. Yeah. Matt rushes forward to join the fray and fight the fallen. And they win. In 30 seconds, it's over, and they decide to get going, because we got to get to Solomon, and they start their long trek across this D20-shaped world. Yeah. So we're going to pause it here for now. This will be part one of Die issue number two. This is so much, guys. It's so dense. There's so much to discuss. There's so much to go into. The implications, the double meanings, everything that it can stand for. One thing that I want to point out before we leave is that we see, for the first time confirmed, Ash's power, the voice, mm -hmm. which is illustrated as this black word bubbles with white text, which in a way is the same way that Ash has been talking to us. Yep. Ash's internal monologue is the same as the voice. And it kind of makes me wonder, because we learned that the dictator 
Their ability is they can control emotions. They use their power to make people feel certain ways. They do. And in the back of the book, if you read the discussion of the Grief Knight, or not the Grief Knight, the dictator's power, put it like this. You listen to an upbeat song, you feel happy. You read a depressing story, you feel sad. Does that ever strike you as sinister? As if someone has magically taken control of your emotions and should be shunned and feared? Of course not. That's just what artists do. It's natural. So that is what the dictator does. Yep. The dictator makes you feel a certain way by bringing up certain memories and feelings. And the dictator speaks to us, the reader, through the voice. Mm-hmm. So how much of this story is the dictator trying to make us, the reader, feel a certain way? Oh, boy. To get a little bit meta about it, the concept of an internal monologue to the reader is already meta. But to get meta about it, this story is the dictator making us, the reader, feel a certain way about something. That makes me wonder what Kieran thinks of himself as. Is he the dictator or is he the game master? That's an interesting question, but it also makes me question the validity of our narrator. Yep. Immediately, I am now questioning, are you an honest narrator, Ash? Ash also mentioned something about that later on, too. Yeah. Also, the thing I was thinking about with Ash's name is the idea of things turning to ash in the mouth yeah it's what happens after destruction it's what happens after everything burns and so it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that kind of foreshadowing with that kind of name the phrase turning to ashes in your mouth usually is said your words will turn into ashes in your mouth meaning that what you say now you will come to regret later which happens yes There's already a lot to be very concerned about, and we've only gotten halfway through this issue. (laughs) So on that ending... Terrifying concept of future pain. Yep, that we'll go into next week. Uh, We have an email. Yes, we have a lovely listener who emailed in with some thoughts about the Wicked and Divine and how Woden's gonna die. (laughs) Yep. So thank you, Nick. Thank you for finally answering my pleas. And I love the way he thinks Woden will die, or they will think Woden will die. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. They have some great theories, but we're going to do this excerpt because I love it. I love it so much. So they write, as regards to how Woden is going to die, I want to offer up the possibility of hanging. Not only would it fit as Woden being the god of the gallows, but Kieran would also get to title the issue... Hang the DJ. Yep. Not only is it a mythological reference, Woden hanging from the world tree, but it's also a reference to the Smith song, Panic, and to Woden's design of Daft Punk, who are DJs themselves. It's also a very good episode of Black Mirror. I feel like Kieran Gillen absolutely 100% would do something for the pun. He would. He totally would. And I love it so much. Also... The Norns are connected to the world tree, so I'm wondering if Cassandra would be the one to kill him. That would be really good, because they are. The Norns are the ones who sit underneath the world tree. Or at least witness his death. Either way. Yeah. But Nick also sends us another theory that the big climax of the comic is going to happen in issue 44, because Nick has realized something that I didn't. And I love it. I didn't realize it either. Which is that all the important stuff happens in Elevens. At issue 11, Laura becomes Persephone and Ananki kills her entire family. Issue 12, Persephone kills Ananki. Issue 22. Issue 22, sorry. Issue 22, Persephone kills Ananki. Issue 33, Minerva is Ananki and the reveal of the heads. Issue 44, question mark, question mark, question mark. It lines up perfectly with the one, two, three, four motif out of the comic. 
The inclusion of issue 45, it can also be seen as lore breaking up the cycle that Adonki has set up and perpetrated over the years. Yeah, this is all great, Nick. I love this. This is a very good theory. I believe it. I'm here for it. Yeah, I'm here for it, too. I really want to see how this goes. This makes me excited to see what issue 44 will be. Yeah. So if you have a similar like thought, if you have a theory or if you agree or disagree with Nick or us about anything, either with the Wicked of Divine or Die, feel free to send us an email. You can reach out to us through our email or Twitter to give us your opinions. Mm-hmm. Our email is once more with feelings podcast at gmail.com. And our Twitter is feelingscast at feelingscast. Yep. So, you know, come by. Tell us if you think Cassandra is going to be the one to kill Woden. And also what you think about Die. And which character would you want to play in the board game? Yeah. Which class do you think you would fit? I kind of want to play the Godbinder. I tend to go for magic clerics with healing abilities. So I want to play with the Godbinder because that's also like a slightly evil version of that. <laughs> I like it. I feel like in real life, I am the Godbinder. <laughs> but I feel like it would be fun to play the Dictator. Both fun and absolutely terrible. I've played in both Dia and Christina and that would be terrifying. Hello, it is I. Here to manipulate your thoughts and feelings. Oh, God. I would just be on edge the entire time with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Christina is very good at setting shit up that you don't see coming until it hits you like a train. You can't see it, but I'm doing jazz hands. <laughs> uh, Kate, before we go out, do you want to give us a recommendation for this week? Oh, yep, yeah, sure. A recommendation for this week. Captain Marvel just started up. It's number one. It's real good. It looks like we're going to be getting post-apocalyptic Captain Marvel written by Kelly Thompson. And I'm here for it. Oh. You also get super supportive. Rhodey, basically all the Avengers are like, oh, we came here to help Carol and she totally had it. Uh, yeah, it's Carol. That sounds about right. I love it. It's a good way to get jazzed for the movie coming up. So, yeah, Captain Marvel is one of the people I stand real hard. So go check that one out. All right. Well, thank you very much for that recommendation. We will see you next week for Die Issue 2, Part 2. Yep. Bye, Kate. Bye, Christina.